1: Hi, this is Tristan Scroggins, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass.
0: Hey, everybody. Well, after that intro, I don't think there's any surprises as to what's coming in this episode. Yep, I've got an interview with Tristan Scroggins for you. Um, it was a pleasure talking to Tristan. Such a great conversation, such a generous... Uh, person with his time and his insights and I just I had such a good time recording this and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Um, for those of you who don't know Tristan Scroggins is a fantastic mandolin player. He was nominated for IBMA's mandolin player of the year this year uh, 2021 and he also won the writer of the year award. He's also a great writer and journalist and also um, in his own words educator. He is interesting from so many different angles and um, I'm going to do what I often do with these interviews now. I say often this is the fourth, but I'm going to um, rather than kind of go through a history of how Tristan got into playing music and the bands he's been in and, and where he's been, that's been covered so well in a couple of other podcasts. So I'm going to stick links in the show notes. He did a couple of interviews for mandolins and beer um, and for Bluegrass Unlimited. And so I'm just going to link to them and you can go and listen to those for the, the sort of the life story stuff. Cause they're great. And they're a really good listen. Um, but what we did was dive in a bit more on a few of the bits. Um, so, this is it. Here we go. I'm going to let you listen to Tristan tell you all about his playing, about his writing, about the work he's done, sort of digging into the authenticity and background of a lot of these tunes. Uh, and, it, and it's fascinating stuff. So I can't thank him enough for doing it. And I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Tristan Scroggins, welcome to Bluegrass Along. It's great to have you here.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, Matt.
0: Um, first off, congratulations on been nominated for ibma mandolin player of the year and congratulations for winning writer of the year
1: yeah thanks it's That's incredible um, yeah it's fun to get you know recognized for that that work it has been very funny trying to explain to people that it's not a songwriting award
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, don't, I can't imagine it's particularly common that somebody is nominated both for an instrumental award and one of the industry awards at the same time
1: yeah i didn't really look into it um there's definitely been uh people that have won both of them especially um there's a, a mentor award um and so that's often going to to artists like uh, i think i can't remember who won this year but a couple of years ago i know um darren aldridge won but anyway there's so there's there's definitely some crossover, but it was um, fun being nominated in in both categories.
0: Yeah, and I think um, I think it's a really interesting sort of starting point to chat about the breadth of stuff that that you do, because not only are you a wonderful instrumentalist and a great writer of songs, but also mm-hmm. kind of a, a writer of words and and something of a historian as well. You've you know the, the amount of kind of archiving and cataloging and just digging into the history of of bluegrass and what makes it tick and where it came from. I think it's really fascinating. You you seem to sort of straddle the line between traditionalist and progressive with total ease, like rather than being one or the other, you're both at the same time all the time.
1: Yeah. I I was thinking about it the other day. um, When I won that award actually, because one of the people who, helped me get started with writing was john weisberger um and john used to have a program on sirius satellite radio um with del mccurry i can't remember exactly it was called something like dell's picks or something and it was him and del mccurry um listening to a lot of new or old music and just sort of talking about it and i remember john Played a song from um, an album that I was on. My uh, it was it was my dad's band, Jeff Scroggins in Colorado. Um, he played a song from one of our albums and said that I was a great traditional mandolin player, and I had never thought of myself that way because I'd grown up mostly listening to more progressive stuff. I guess I mean I was a huge. Sam Bush fan. Um, I listened to Bayless Fleck all the time, and and was really into like strength and numbers and all that stuff. Um, but I was playing in a bluegrass band, so I had spent a lot of time learning how to sound like a bluegrass mandolin player, and nobody had ever like commented on that, and it really made me sort of think about it. And I realized that I was actually I'd spent a long time like working on um, traditional mandolin stuff, and it sort of inspired me to to work on it a little bit more.
0: Um, and there, and I yeah, that, I was going to say is that there's a really interesting conversation to be had about how progressive you can be if you don't know what you're progressing from in the first place. Anyway,
1: sure. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I grew up. Well, I, I lived for about eight years in Colorado, which has a really um, long and interesting bluegrass history. Probably most notable. Well, I, either for um, Hot Rise or Yonder Mountain String Band, um, both progressive bands. Although with Hot Rise, it's funny that as time has gone on, they're not particularly progressive anymore. I yeah, mean, they, sure. at the time, they they were um, a very contemporary band, but. Um, things have just sort of, I mean, they still do a lot of like, <laughs> I guess doing their whole Western swing thing is also um, very not bluegrass. But but anyway, so there's this long tradition of that that stuff in Colorado that I grew up around. And a lot of times it did really feel like um, there wasn't a ton of foundation to the stuff that people was were doing sometimes. Like it, it felt sort of disconnected from the source and made it feel like even more disconnected from from bluegrass um, but then I, as i started to learn more about that the history of that music too I, it started to to make more sense it was just sort of this it, it, it was a branch that branched pretty far away from the source pretty quickly so it it, it doesn't it doesn't sound as similar to traditional bluegrass as some other like variants that you know that you might hear do
0: yeah yeah and i find that kind of stuff fascinating i did um my sort of degree was in pop music history so i, I mm-hmm. love that thing of, of pulling on a thread and seeing where something came from and yeah where it goes to and i and ultimately it sort of doesn't matter if you like a bit of music it doesn't necessarily matter where it came from or if it moves right. you it moves you like but I, I find it interesting to go and dig back into the history of the bands that i like and see who they liked and where that came from. And, you know, you can, you can keep going forever. Um, And this is maybe something that's particularly pertinent to me because I grew up outside of the States, outside of the tradition of bluegrass. It's not something I grew up with. Um, And I wonder, it is something you grew up with. I mean, there's a brilliant quote I read that you said something like, I think by the time I turned eight, I've been listening to him play banjo for eight years and nine months. And that's Mm -hmm. talking about your dad. And it's like, you know, since you were in the womb, you had a sense of this music. And I find that really powerful and it makes it particularly interesting that you then chose to kind of almost study it as well. Um, A lot of people have an approach that is very much, this is an oral music, it's handed down by tradition. It doesn't, you shouldn't be studying it in a sort of an academic sense. You should Mm -hmm. learn as much as you can about it. But, And um, I wondered sort of where that came from, where the sort of the seed of just really wanting to explore it in that way came from.
1: Yeah, I I think... There's this interesting thing. My friend George Jackson wrote a piece for No Depression. I think it was No Depression a few years ago um, about feeling like an outsider playing bluegrass because he's from New Zealand and now he lives here in Nashville um, as a professional fiddler and his sort of experience of not having any claim to authenticity. Um, and for me... I have this kind of weird thing where I I grew up in New Mexico where there wasn't very much bluegrass, but my dad was, who is, who my dad is. Um, So I, I was learning it in a very traditional way. I I was learning from him and I was um, learning from just, you know, playing music with people, but there was still a sense of like, you know, I, I, I remember coming out east for the first time and seeing the Cumberland River and seeing um, the Shenandoah Valley and seeing signs for all of these places that songs were written about. And there aren't any songs, really, about any of the places that I grew up. Yeah, And I, I don't know. I, there's definitely this thing. I see it a lot out west where people, because of this perceived um, lack or f- feeling like they don't have this claim to authenticity. Sometimes they'll go really far into learning some, like the history and being really intense about knowing everything about it. More so than a lot of people I know out here, um, in in Nashville or or you know in the southeast. And I think some of it is is just looking looking for that sense of authenticity. And for me, it was definitely, I remember I had this sort of moment where I was probably like 18 or 19 and I was just wondering like, why do I like bluegrass? <laughs> like I, you know, it, it, it was the most important thing in my life and still is, but, um, I, I started to wonder like why is this important to me and why is it important to other people? Like what, it what about it makes it interesting to other people? And I think back then I maybe had a more naive sense of like, maybe bluegrass is special. Like there's, I traveled a lot and been to like the UK and been to Norway and France and Canada and all these places where there was people who loved bluegrass. Like, And like, what was the, I was really curious what the thing that was drawing them to it was. And I I don't know that there's anything particular about bluegrass because there's also people in all those places that like jazz and there's people here that are really into Scandinavian folk music. So, but that sort of curiosity led me, you know, to just sort of want to learn about all that history. And I just got kind of obsessed with, with learning about it. And I think it made me a better, not necessarily like just knowing about it made me a better musician, but that curiosity led me down some musical rabbit holes that I think
0: made me a more well-rounded musician. We'll be right back with you just after this. Collings Guitars has been a long-time supporter of the bluegrass community, from collaborating with artists to sponsoring festivals big and small, and now by sponsoring Bluegrass Jamalong. Handmade in Austin, Texas, every Collings guitar and mandolin that leaves the shop is built from the sound-up, and the team loves seeing a Collings in the hands of players of all levels, from local musicians to world-renowned pickers. Visit collingsguitars.com for more. This episode is also brought to you by Peghead Nation, the home of Roots Music Instruction. With 65 streaming video courses for guitar, mandolin, banjo, fiddle, dobro, bass and ukulele from some of the leading names in acoustic music, Peghead Nation is something for every picker. You'll learn the tunes and techniques you need to join in at jams and play the music you love, plus advanced techniques like improvisation, theory and ear training. Your first course is just $20 per month and you can add more for $10 a month. Sign up for any course and get your first month free with the promo code JAMALONG, all one word. Join thousands of other players, including me, who are advancing on their instruments and having more fun playing the roots music they love at pegheadnation.com. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting. I remember you wrote something about a sort of really moving experience of being in the Netherlands at a festival and just realising you were surrounded by people who have no physical connection to the spaces or the places or or even some of the culture, but we're equally moved by the music as people who grew up right in the heart of it all. Yeah. And um, it's a bit, I think it's—I think sometimes music can be like a sort of, like a, a city without boundaries. And they're, like I live in London, but I wasn't born here, I wasn't brought up here. But you move to London and you live in London for a while and you become a Londoner, you just sort of, that sort of authenticity thing isn't a thing. You don't have to have been born here to be considered a Londoner. And I guess mm-hmm. a city like New York's probably the same. After a while, you just become a New Yorker. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about bluegrass. Like I'm, you know, thousands of miles and a lot of different culture away from being part of it. And yet through playing it with people and listening to it and doing this podcast, I feel like I'm in some way part of that family or that sort of city of music. Mm-hmm. And um, I think bluegrass has that. in maybe a way that jazz or something like that doesn't because it, it does have a sort of spiritual homeland in a, in a very strong way. And the songs are written about the places and the, you know, the landscapes and... Yeah. You
1: know. I One of my favorite things about going to IBMA, which is notable because IBMA has pretty deliberately um, decided to not define bluegrass. Like there's not really any sort of desire to say, this is what bluegrass is, because that immediately leads to saying... The, it, ex- it inherently excludes things yeah. um, but going to IBM um, or EWAB back when that was a thing um, was is really interesting because everybody there loves bluegrass but it means something different to every single person there like bluegrass is not the same to everybody there but they all love it and are connected by this very intangible idea of being connected to to something and i do think that bluegrass is very unique as far as musical genres go in that in that sense and then there's a, there's definitely a weird thing with genre i think about the, it a lot like with with book genres there's a little bit more like you can be a little bit more clear cut about something being science fiction or a mystery or whatever but musical genres are very much just classifications meant to sell albums like it's just how how to put something in a bin that um, a person who's going to buy it is most likely going to find it and so while we can sort of retroactively look at a time period of bluegrass and define it based on that it again with john weisberger he i'm gonna sort of misquote him because i can't remember exactly but he his sort of idea about it is that if it's music that was performed with the intent of being bluegrass was sold with the intent of being bluegrass and bought as bluegrass then it is bluegrass like it it is all sort of based on this collective idea of what it is there it to put an inherent marker on on what makes something bluegrass or not it, it 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 doesn't work because immediately it turns into well you know it has to sound like this and then but then you have things like those albums of Bill Monroe and Doc Watson playing together that don't really fit that mold or a lot of Doc Watson stuff that like not everything he did was bluegrass necessarily but a lot of it was but a lot of it didn't you know broke a lot of the rules that people would ascribe to bluegrass and things like that
0: yeah totally and I, I, mean, I spent years working in, in record shops and like bookshops back in the day and, and it is exactly what you say it's about it's marketing like genres yeah. are marketing they're not they don't tell you what's going to be in the thing when you open it it's and with a book you can you do get instances where people will slap a different cover on a book and sell it as a, an adult version or a young adult version like a teen book or, you know, like the Harry Potter books or Philip Mm. Pullman or whatever. But yeah, like music, I remember we'd be there sort of debating for hours, do we put Steve Earle in country or rock? Like, where do we put him? And I remember going to see him, you know, years ago and him saying, I'd love coming to the UK because nobody cares really what my music is. They just like it or they don't. And, Mm. you know, he said back home, people can get a little bit obsessed with whether I'm country or not. He said, it doesn't really matter, you know? I mean, Steve Earle never said anything quite that gently, but, you know, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's a good point. You, know, you end up with an REM album that says on the spine file underwater, you know, cause they were mm-hmm. just like, well, you, we're not going to tell you where to put this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that I, I could go on a pretty long tangent about my sort of ideas about this, but I do think that bluegrass changed in the sixties and seventies around what some people would call the third generation. Other people would call the second, um, where you started getting a lot of, um, for lack of a better word, maybe outsiders, like people not in that tradition hearing the music, a lot of like middle-class, um northern and western, like college-age kids, you know, finding it through the folk revival. And a couple of things happened all at once, I think, One of them being that all these new bands started forming and it was the first time really that you could be exposed to bluegrass without hearing the first generation source for a lot of the material like you were hearing people professionally perform covers of the music um, and that changes how you know you're hearing their interpretation of something and so immediately is going to cause a lot of of growth and change in the music and in addition to that it became this sort of there was a lot of people trying to like fit into this idea or like being intrigued by the culture and sort of adapting to it and so I like I wasn't there back then, so it's like talking about it feels weird. But I can talk about like now, growing to bluegrass festivals in California or Washington State, where you know there's all these people who grew up out there playing bluegrass, but they wear flannel shirts and speak in like sort of vague Southern accents and are really intense about stuff. And it, in a lot of ways, it feels very similar to. Um, like a like a star trek convention or something like it's because there's sort of this idolizing of this idea of what this is and sort of wanting to to cosplay and be a part of it and in other countries it's i have this book somewhere um about country music in in the uk and um I guess even with my experience, like playing in Germany and stuff like I I play or France, I played at this festival in France and there was all these people who were really into line dancing and just would line dance to anything. And like, it was very, very strange being like in the French countryside surrounded by very French people dressed up as cowboys and selling like Confederate flag merch, which is its whole own thing. And, um, dancing, like line dancing to um, acoustic covers of ACDC songs. You know, it's just Mm -hmm. this very surreal sort of experience. But but that, I think, is a big part of this music where even musically you have a lot of people writing music that is not necessarily um, in the style of bluegrass as much as it is in a style that like seeks to invoke or imitate the style of bluegrass and not necessarily on a conscious level but I I think a lot of those songs that just are about bluegrass like bluegrass songs about bluegrass sort of fall into this category of like is this a bluegrass song or is it just a song about bluegrass like it's
0: and I think that happens if you're trying to be involved with something that you're not physically present for it's like you know sort of history of comedy tv comedy in in the uk and in the sort of 50s and 60s all our comedians sounded american and they all sang like mm. they were part of the rat pack and because that was the cool thing mm. and then you know everything on tv was basically trying to be american and then the beatles came along who were just being the beatles who were just as northern and as british and couldn't have come from anywhere else than they did and it was sort of a bit of a shock because you still have Mick Jagger trying to sound like he was from wherever Mick Jagger sounds like he's from. I don't even know was, if Mick Jagger knows, but you know, he was here last night. Actually, there's
1: videos of him walking around on Broadway because <laughs> the yeah, yeah they're played. on tour at the moment, aren't they? Yeah,
0: yeah. And that's you know that's a whole in a way sort of like a a version of cultural cultural appropriation in a sense, you know. Mm. And it's it's just I think there's that I think you said something earlier on actually about it's that desire to belong to something and. But your idea of it is can be very different from the reality of it, you know. Yeah. A lot of people who get into Americana in the UK have a certain sense of it that it's probably about 30% of what it actually is.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think it's... I, I don't necessarily want to sound like I'm saying that that's all bad because it's like, I mean, that's my roots too. Like, even though I have a very, in retrospect, sort of authentic sort of experience, um, I... You know, I was I was I was living in New Mexico, and I I recently did a bunch of research and writing about bluegrass in New Mexico, and one of my favorite things about it was um, all of the band names. Like they sort of were trying to sound, they matched the style of bluegrass band names, but they didn't. They used things that were relevant to them so there i played in a band called the squash blossom boys and there was like the adobe brothers or the san juan mountain boys or um you know there's all these bands out there that i i think that that sort of captures the spirit of both of those things it's like well this is we're doing this thing but we're doing it here like we're not none of the people in new mexico were trying to like be southern exactly and i i, I think that that I, I don't know i think that there's i I really love people all over playing bluegrass and I, I i but i do think it's it gets sort of weird for me when people i think that sometimes people get in this space of like having to define what bluegrass is so that yeah, they yeah. can like make these these claims um or um and that's not very helpful actually so i try to avoid avoid that
0: i mean, it's really i think that's really interesting because authenticity is sort of two things isn't it and one is authenticity of the like stylistically the music you're playing but also being authentically yourself while you play it because part of the journey of being a musician is to learn to be you know a bit of a chat about this on the podcast last week about punch brothers recording church street blues Mm -hmm. and punch brothers can only be like the reason they are brilliant is because they fully explore who they are yeah and a lot of people don't like it and that's fine but they they can't do anything else that's that's their job as artists is to be the most fully realized version of themselves doing whatever they do. And if they take a certain bit of source material, that was a cover anyway, like, yeah, nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. And whether you like it or not, it's entirely different. And yeah. so it's not, it's not like author air quotes, authentic in terms of it doesn't sound like Norman Blake. Um, and it sort of does as well. And that's okay. I, mean, I,
1: I think that's a great example. And I, I love that. Um, version partly because i do actually enjoy it but i also love how upset it makes people (laughs) yeah yeah but i talked to to chris eldridge about it and he was saying that it so far it's certainly been the most divisive thing they've ever done probably but for him i mean he learned tony was his teacher and Tony was showing, like teaching him to do stuff like that. Like he wasn't teaching him to do note for note covers of things. He was teaching him to push the boundaries of stuff. And so it's a very authentic expression uh, and a very like loving and thoughtful cover to to perform that music in a way that like honors how innovative and creative Tony Rice was and how great that record. I mean, like you're saying he was covering Norman Blake and he doesn't, he takes out a bunch of like cool stuff from the, you know, I like the way that Norman Blake plays it, but I also love the way Tony plays it. And it would be weird (laughs) to just do a note for note cover of, of Tony, especially for an artist like the punch brothers speaking of somebody who has done a lot of tony rice covers on stage but
0: yeah and it's and that's one of the things not coming from the tradition that i find really interesting because i'm putting out these backing tracks for people to jam along with at home Mm -hmm. and i go to great pains to say like i will play a version of the tune for you to play backup to but it's not the version of the tune or it's like i'm not encouraging you to play that version of the tune that's just how i've come to that tune and yeah. you can play any version you like over my backing chords, but but that um i think maybe i slightly naively thought because i talked to brian sutton on the podcast recently and he said yeah like you get 100 guitar players you're going to get 100 versions of whiskey for breakfast whiskey mm-hmm. before breakfast and mm-hmm. um, and i sort of thought well maybe there aren't like what is the authentic version of these tunes but i, I and then i this is sort of how i ended up um kind of reading a bit more about you because i saw that you'd put out this book of mandolin transcriptions and had sort of gone through sort of looking for the source of the tunes as well, not mm-hmm. just variations and here's how to play it, but here's, here's where it came from. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it throws up some interesting stuff because if you ask questions, you sometimes come back with uncomfortable answers in the history of some of those tunes. And, and I find that fascinating and sort of curious to know how far back you can go to be authentic with a tune and, and know what a version was from something that was, you know, an oral tradition originally.
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question. and I mean, I think about, uh, you know, because of publishing books like that and also just, I, I want to be authentic or whatever <laughs> when I play these tunes. Um, and with studying the tunes, there was this interesting thing, especially with the bluegrass ones. I did another book of like old time tunes and that was a little bit more straightforward. But with the bluegrass tunes, um w- The ones that I picked were um, all public domain, so they're older tunes, but that were very common in the bluegrass tradition. But with a few of them, the version that people played is play in bluegrass jams is not. It's not unrelated or anything. It's it's clearly related to the actual tune, but it's pretty different. And I sort of struggled with like when I was writing out just the basic melody, like what do I write? Do I, cause it's not going to be really useful for anybody to know a version of this tune that nobody else is going to play in a bluegrass yeah. jam, even if it's the technically correct version of the tune. So there was a few where I definitely took more Liberty in, in writing out, like this is the version, this is the melody that is most likely going to be played in a jam um, but then explaining um, that it, it has a slightly different history. Um, and part of that, I you know, I think that that's part of my job as like an educator is to be a curator and to help student, you know, cause I have a lot of experience thinking about this playing in jams, playing with other people. And I have a lot of experience t- to be able to look at a version and say like, yes, this is something that people are going to actually be able to play along with. Uh, but, Part of the reason I I wanted to do that was because a lot of books, I have a lot of tune books, and they don't all necessarily do that. And it it, it can be hard to, especially because I'm interested in old-time music, and if you start hanging out with old-time people who are really interested in the source material of things, and you start playing a tune, and you realize, like, oh, maybe I don't actually know (laughs) this tune.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's one of those things I found immediately baffling when I started learning tunes you go to three tune books there's three different versions of the tune um Mm -hmm. and you you sort of said that it was slightly easier with old-time music to find the authentic versions of it and is that because old-time music is a bit more like scots-irish music where everybody just plays the tune and there's not so much improvisation so you haven't had people take it as far away from the original
1: yeah i I think that that's probably that's probably true because for example the tune beaumont rag um you know it's a it's a fiddle tune. It's a Texas style fiddle tune, and it's in the key of F. It's supposed to be in the key of F because um, it's a rag, and a lot of rags are in the key of F. But Doc Watson recorded a much a version of it that's much more popular with bluegrass people than any particular Texas style version. and He plays it in D. For um, if I had to guess, because um, if I it's it lays out well in D and if you were going to play it on the guitar in F, you could just capo three and, um, play out of D position. Um, but if you're just performing on your own without a fiddle, like why would you put the capo on? So, um, probably just played it in D. But so now if you call it in a jam, everybody's going to know it in the key of D and they're Mm -hmm. going to know Doc Watson's version, not, which is a guitar version of a song. So it's, there's a lot of difference between like a fiddle version of the song and and I think that, that that happens a lot with with tunes. And as I was looking through a lot of tunes, I, I I could have spent a little bit more time trying to figure out exactly where they entered the common like bluegrass vernacular, Because some of them are just Bill Monroe, like Bill Monroe playing Soldier's Joy. Um like his version of it is different than like a fiddle old time version of it. Yeah, yeah. Um but um i do think with the old time the fact that everybody sort of deliberately plays the same melody pretty much all the time sort of preserves it that mixed with the fact that people will memorize and know different versions of the tune like you can say well this is um ed haley's version of this tune or this is um you know whoever else's version of this tune, and people will know what you're talking about and play it differently.
0: Mm. Yeah, I'd, I'd learned East Tennessee blues a while ago for the podcast, and learned it from an Adam Steffi album because mm-hmm. I just loved his version. And then went hunting for other versions and realized like most people play it slightly differently from that. He's he's got a, he's got a take on it that you know it may have come from somewhere else that I haven't heard yet, but you know, and it's it's really interesting to hear that and just to. And I guess, particularly with bluegrass, often if you listen to a CD of bluegrass instrumentals, often the first A part and B part contain a fair amount of improvisation. Like, there's not. You don't always even get a clean statement of the tune before Mm -hmm. it's off into, you know, into variation. So it's, yeah, it's it's interesting picking it apart as um, somebody who comes from outside that tradition. Yeah. Um, And I think it's really interesting. We we were talking earlier about what is authentic and traditional. You mentioned... Bill Monroe and dot Watson, you know who mm-hmm. are two people that people would look as being fairly part of the people who created the rules um, mm. and and yet breaking them and and i and I don't know if this is true, but I get the sense that um duets are often a good way of doing that. You get a bit more scoped because bluegrass is also slightly codified as a certain set of instruments if you get up and mm. you know if you get up on stage. With those five or six instruments in your hands, people are going to look at you like a bluegrass band, even if you then play a bit of Debussy, like Punch Brothers might. Or, sure, but but the and I I love really love hearing um, kind of bluegrass players play in duets, particularly if they're mandolinists or guitarists, because you get to hear a bit more of like the the Skaggs and Rice stuff. You hear bits of Tony's rhythm playing that just get a little bit lost on a a full band recording. But it yeah. feels like people like using that kind of format to branch out a bit as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I certainly do that. I have a duet that I play in, and we, it, it's, it's been, in, I mean, so it's violin and mandolin, and it's generally very similar uh, in scope to, like, the stuff that Mike Marshall and Daryl Langer would do mm-hmm. in, in duets. And we would actually, we'd, we mostly would do house concerts in the Bay Area, and we would um, hand out surveys uh during our shows and ask people to answer questions about the music while they were listening to it and uh we did that a bunch and got a bunch of really interesting information about you know what people thought that we were doing and it was pretty like we did at one point we divvied up all the information and put it on sticky notes and arranged it on the wall and it was 50 50 exactly 50 50 People who would were describing what we were doing generally as bluegrass, and people who were describing what we were doing generally as classical music or um, classical crossover, and I thought I found that really interesting like it it because we were I guess technically doing both um, but it just had to do with people's perception of it, and so I think you're right, like when you go up on stage, if you have a banjo people are going to make assumptions about what kind of music it is. Like Bayless Bayless talked about that a lot where he was very desperately trying, like with the flectones, trying to play music that was so far away from bluegrass as a way of saying like the banjo is not exclusively tied to this genre of music, but there's, there's ultimately going to be that perception no matter what. But if you have, um, I, I guess the mandolin kind of has that same thing. But it's less—it's less of a cultural symbol. Like if somebody doesn't or isn't already familiar with the mandolin, they might not have those perce- those those preconceived sort of notions about about the music. But it's all perception, which sort of ties back into that idea of genre. It's like you know, you could put that music that I make with Alyssa. In either a bluegrass section or a classical crossover section, and
0: you know it would fifty percent of the time be correct, and fifty percent of the time be wrong. It's great, <laughs> and uh, by, and I love it. And one of the reasons I I love um, the Scroggins and Rose stuff is because just the, the ability to hear what you're doing in the space and the mm-hmm. kind of you get to hear a lot of nuance in your playing that will get lost in a sort of five person six person band. Um, and I guess you play rhythm in a very different sort of way. Your job is not just to be the snare drum in the band; you get to all, you be the whole rhythm section while you're playing yeah. backup. And and that um, that wonderful thing that I never realised at first about bluegrass backup is that it's as much of an improvisation as the tune is sometimes. And you're totally. finding harmonic changes or rhythmic changes or counter melody or just you know, it's as much of a yeah. journey going on there as there is in the melody.
1: Yeah, it's and it's really fun playing with just one other person. Um, like, I love jamming with just one other person because I can mess around with the rhythm and like really find a groove because that's, what, that's what's really fun about playing with really good musicians is that there's a group of you and so there's less room for you to do a bunch of that stuff. But if everybody's supporting each other, then you can sort of, you're creating something together. And I always try to tell students, I mean, especially if you're going to a jam, like, you know, if there's 10 people in the jam, you're going to be playing a song for like six to eight minutes and your solo is going to take 30 to 40 seconds, essentially. Like it is it is a small fraction of what you're doing there. So like focusing on the rhythm is important. Same thing playing on stage. Like, you know, I take a solo on pretty much every song, but that's 30 seconds of a three-minute long song. Like there's a lot. My job is mostly to play rhythm and to support whatever is, is going on in front. Yeah. And that improvisation—I I, um, guess—I had not really thought about it exactly that way. But that improvising with the rhythm is definitely a, a big part of that.
0: And that whole thing is essentially how this podcast started. Is I was—I sort of realized that I could learn tunes and I could learn to improvise. But most of the time at jam, I wasn't going to be doing that. But mm-hmm. there weren't any backing tracks out there that just played the melody, so you could play rhythm. You know, and or there were, but. They were part of a more of a jam sort of format and so somebody else was also playing the rhythm in there and so I thought it'd be pretty neat just to release some tracks where I just play the tune and then any yeah. other instrument could work on backup but I essentially made them for myself because I, I wanted that and couldn't find it anywhere um, yeah. and it is it's amazing how much people still spend 95 they they flip it around and spend 95% of their time working on playing lead and improvising 5% of their time on playing rhythm and I had a good rhythm player I remember sort of hearing people talk a lot when Tony Rice died about people didn't, I mean, people talked about all facets of his playing, but the amount of people who mentioned his rhythm playing first and foremost as the mm-hmm. thing that, you know, just that he lifted everybody else on stage around him. And that's a, a real, a really nice thing to hear. It's a very, I, I remember
1: uh, the first time I noticed, I guess being in a jam where with somebody who, made everybody else play better like by being in that jam I had kind of taken it a little bit for granted because I was always around my dad who's a great musician and um, we played in you know we had great people in that band that we played in Um, Greg Blake was in the band from the beginning and he's a great rhythm guitar player and so I had always kind of taken that for granted I mean I I was part of what I learned when I was learning bluegrass was like you know you can't be messing around (laughs) When you're playing rhythm like you know you, you need to support other people but i remember like when i started to realize that in jams and like that's what i want to be as a musician is like i want to be somebody who makes other people play better because that also makes people want to play with you for one thing you know if you make other people sound better you people are going to want to play with you more and it's it's hard to do that in a in a like a big like sort of public bluegrass jam just because there's so many people and the, it's really hard for the rhythm to lock in when there's so many people but but when I would go to jams as a like a little kid we went to this we would drive an hour every week and go to this jam in Santa Fe and there would be like 30 people there so it would take a very long time to get through a song and i would just practice different inversions of the chords you know cuz i was playing the same three chords for like Twenty minutes, so I would just practice different inversions of the chords, sort of like work on being able to still contribute to to the sound of what was going on, but like also keep myself sort of entertained by by trying to learn something new in that time.
0: Yeah, and like those kind of jam sessions I, it's one of the things that I end up always returning to in these kind of conversations. Is just the idea that music is a conversation, and. In a duet, you can have a full-on conversation with one other person where your thoughts flow in and out of each other and around each other and you sort of say stuff to work out if it sounds right and you mean it or not. But in a, a more sort of in a bigger, busier situation, it's hard and then people get their 30 seconds to play their couple of choruses or whatever and, mm-hmm. and they want they want to tell you all the things they know in one go because they're not going to get a chance to do it again for 10 minutes. And um being able to be restrained and supportive as a musician in those sort of circumstances is a proper skill, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that, um, I actually started to realize that with was, um, when I was learning how to dance, like I, I do like clogging and stuff. And I learned from like Mark Schatz played bass with my dad's band for a long time. And so Mark would show me stuff between, you know, gigs and stuff and his wife eileen who passed away a couple years ago she's a really important person in the history of clogging and like a percussive dance preservation here in the states and she was actually the one who taught john hartford like sort of worked with him to develop that step that he would do
0: yeah
1: and so she would come on tour sometimes and and we would um dance and she you know was an amazing dancer could do all these amazing things but what she was always trying to get me and ellie the fiddle player in the band to do was just to like jam but just dancing and we were just we wanted to do all of the like fancy moves that we were learning but she was trying to get us to just um do a basic just a little shuffle pattern so that you know, if somebody was going to do something cool that you could hear it and that they felt supported while they were doing it. Because if everybody's doing a bunch of random stuff, it doesn't sound very good. You can't, there's too much information. And so being in a jam is actually the same way where you have a whole bunch of people or even just, you know, five people like a, a, just a bluegrass, just a band jamming. If you're doing a bunch of stuff like in the rhythm section then if somebody does something it's gonna get lost and also everything that you're doing also loses all gravity it's so much more powerful to have that restraint to just be doing like the basic job of like keeping things together and supporting people when they do their one cool thing and then you do one cool thing you just do it once it's way more powerful than like just doing everything you know and the same thing with playing the melody to something too like you could do like a crazy solo or something um but it's a lot more powerful to mostly just play the melody and have like one little thing that makes it cool and interesting yeah yeah. and it it's hard to have that restraint in a music that so greatly puts value on virtuosity and you know being able to do these really impressive things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I probably got a a useful start with that as a musician. Cause I started as a drummer mm. and like, if you're doing all the stuff you can do all the time as a drummer, nobody's ever going to hire you. <laughs> just, you know, nobody's going to want to play with you. And so you learn to just sort of to do a certain thing. And, and at the same time I was sort of playing percussion in orchestras and you might not have anything to do till the third movement, like being a percussionist in an orchestra is largely counting. And, <laughs> You know, but then when you get to do something. It sounds great because you you add a bit of spice and a bit of color to this thing that sounds really cool already. And there is a lot of pleasure to be had in that. Um, but it's it's one of the first things that goes out the window when the adrenaline goes and you get excited and just want to tell. It's a bit like a conversation where you want to tell somebody all the things that you are thinking in one go, and nobody wants to yeah. hear all the things you are thinking in one go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well, and, and that duet with Alyssa it, with the the most recent record we did, um, we had West Corbett produce it because Wes has, a, you know, he grew up playing classical piano, so he's, he sort of knows that world. But mm-hmm. And he's done a bunch of bluegrass stuff. He's the banter mm-hmm. player for the Sam Bush Band now. But he had just done a, he himself had done a duo record with um, a great Hammer Dulcimer player named Simon Chrisman. And he was really helpful in, in, getting us to use space like a third member of the band like like you were saying like I, i'm not just chopping the whole time Yeah, i I, ha- I have to fill out a bunch of the other information and when i'm when i'm playing the lead Alyssa has to fill out a lot of the information and we're both doing like very complicated stuff to to fill out the rest of that information but we figured out that you don't have to do that all the time it doesn't have to be complicated all the time like you can in that situation use silence as a, a very like important piece of the music and it's hard to do that like it, it's it's very counterintuitive like your your whole job is making noise <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. actively not making noise is sort of it, it's just a different skill to develop and Wes That's was true. really helpful with putting that in there
0: it's really interesting to hear you say that because I was listening to the album this weekend in the car, and just sort of thought, you know, like I'd not that I necessarily have the chops to do it, but as a guitar player, it'd be a great album to play along with because there is room for there's room, there's space, there's kind yeah. of, there's room to, you know, almost, almost play along with an album, which is quite a rare thing. Um And it is, it's that sort of Miles Davis versus John Coltrane thing, isn't it? If you've got one guy playing three notes over the space of about six bars and they all sound amazing. And the other guy's playing this whole bluster of scales, which also sounds amazing. But that, that whole Miles Davis thing of just giving you room to make some decisions about what the notes mean can be really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. My dad would always,
1: um, as a banjo player, my dad would always practice to Manzanita cause there's no banjo on Manzanita. So he would just yeah. practice by playing along with Manzanita.
0: I mean that's this pretty good workout, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean yeah.
1: Yeah, I think it would be interesting to to have I mean I think what you're doing with the podcast is great because there's not a lot of opportunities for people to to get to play along in that sense. Like, you know, you can play along with a recording, but it's but that's not the same as like trying to fill the space in a recording. Exactly.
0: Yeah. And I, I, um, I sort of started going back to this whole authenticity thing, really. I, when I started doing the podcast, I was a bit nervous that there were many better people than me in terms of musicians who could do something like this, but I sort of quite quickly came to the idea that if it's got some mistakes in and it, it sounds a bit kind of rough around the edges, that's all right. Cause that's what jamming with somebody else in their front room is going to sound like anyway. Totally. And that was sort of part of the thing. And so I sort of, Talked to myself around and learn to relax into it a bit and um yeah and it's been really fun to do it's been just i sort of started out as a a bit of a lockdown thing thinking well if people can't mm-hmm. get to jams maybe but actually it turns out to be something people are using to get the confidence up to be able to go to a jam because they just you know don't don't quite know when they're ready and you never right. you never feel you never feel ready you just got to go and get on with it but totally um, it's been really nice to hear that um one one thing I found really interesting is, and it's sort of a, a kind of recent shift in the way we discover music and stuff. When I was younger, you used to buy albums or you'd watch videos on TV or whatever, where you'd go and see a band live and there'd be a support act and you go, oh, they're cool. But the opportunity to discover things now, like you can, particularly with the amount of content that's out there, you could discover you and learn quite a lot about you as a musician without buying any of your records at all, just through the mm-hmm. amount of, content there is out there through things like the Carter Carter's vintage guitar videos and stuff like that, mm-hmm. which I love. They're great. You know, and there's a lot of duet stuff on there as well. Mm-hmm. There's so many different ways of experiencing this music now. And I think maybe lockdowns contributed to that a bit because people are live streaming and Facebook living and whatever. Um, but yeah, I'd lo- I really like those Carter's videos and they look like they're probably quite a lot of fun to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're um, a nice little, thing the folks that record them are really fun to hang out with (laughs) um and it's fun to get to play the fancy instruments and stuff um and the ones that i've done um like i did a few with molly tuttle and those were really fun it was fun you know we used um we played a bunch of music together and stuff and so it was fun to get to record some of that but um I, I do think it's interesting that there's so much, so many more ways to experience music. But I don't know that it's necessarily super different from, you know, once records became a thing and then once radio became a thing. like Things just sort of, there's always new things. Like you used to, that was a big part of like tunes changing over time was that there mm-hmm. weren't recordings of the tunes. Like if somebody was going to go and learn a tune, you had to either learn it from the person or I've heard stories about people like fiddlers or like groups of people like pulling together enough money to send one fiddler to go see a show of somebody like traveling through and try to remember all of the tunes that they played to bring back and teach to people. And like that's obviously going to lead to there being different versions. Yeah, yeah. Um, But, you know, once, once records came along, that changed everything because that then whatever version was recorded was the version, which was never true before. You could play it, you know, a fiddler could play it differently every single time they played it. But now that it's recorded, it's like, this is that version of that tune and it lives forever essentially. And now with videos and stuff, that's extra true. And with videos of, you know, everybody has a camera in their pocket, like, whatever i play at a show if somebody happens to video it like that version exists forever whereas like in the past that would have just been something that happened and you had to have been there to to see it
0: yeah and and like a recording is a snapshot of a a piece of music at one particular time and that's all it is isn't it it's and you you mm -hmm. might go back to the studio and play the same song the next day and it's all the breaks are totally different and that would have been the version
1: yeah well, and that's part of what's made me feel very comfortable with putting out music and making videos. Is like I can only, you know, I I lean towards being a perfectionist, but I don't get anything done if I am doing that. So I, I um, I I feel very comfortable now acknowledging that generally I am the average of the best and worst that I am. Like, wh- however I play today, if a, if I play worse today than I play tomorrow, it doesn't really matter. It all averages out to the same thing. And, you know, a recording is just, this is how I sound right now. Like, I can't wait forever to sound, di- you know, it's just it's just going to sound however it sounds right now. So I, I, that's made me a lot more comfortable making recordings and stuff. It's just like, you know, I, I could wait 10 years and be better yeah. and record something, or I could just do it now. <laughs> like
0: It yeah. doesn't really make to, any difference. It's exactly the same thing about working out when you're ready to have a kid. Like, you're never ready. Mm-hmm. But when they arrive, you become ready. Um, mm-hmm. But it's really um, it's refreshing to hear you say that, and it's become a little bit of a theme in these interviews of just this idea that however accomplished somebody is or famous somebody is or successful somebody is or like everybody's just on this journey and we're not like I think it's easy I've said this to, to other people in interviews I've done it it's easy for people like me to look at really accomplished players and presume that they've arrived and mm-hmm. that's you know you're just wandering around enjoying the view and and everybody I've spoken to has said no of course not like we're still yeah. we're just at, we're just at a different point of the journey and there's some stuff that we've internalized that we don't need to think about now that might be a struggle for you but we're internalizing new stuff every day and some days it doesn't feel great and some days it does.
1: Yeah. It's very, you know, sometimes it's, there's definitely like, especially in bluegrass, there's like this vaguely Southern thing of just like always being weirdly humble about everything. But there's also a very real, like everybody's always just trying to get better. And that's part of why I like living in Nashville. Like it is a very competitive town in a lot of ways. But everybody's just always trying to get better at what they're doing, and it's it's not about it's not necessarily about being better than somebody else. It's just about being the best that you you can be.
0: Mm.
1: And it's everybody's constantly just like working really hard. I, I was talking to um, Bronwyn Keith Hines the other day. She just won uh, Fiddle Player of the Year. Yeah. and I've known her for a long time, and. Um, we're about the same age, and I was asking her how it felt, um, and she was, you know, ha- having she was, you know, happy about it. But tr- you know, it's it's hard to not have reservations about like, do I deserve this? Which you know, had I won that award, <laughs> it would have been exactly how I felt. And like when Molly won Guitar Player of the Year, that's how she felt. And but a couple of years, I guess 2020 at IBMA, Daryl Anger. Um, got he was presented a distinguished achievement award and his speech was really beautiful and a big part of it was him saying like i'm really thankful that people think that i'm deserving of this when there are so many people other people who are equally deserving or more deserving of this and it's daryl anger talk Uh, like (laughs) like maybe the most influential fiddler of the last (laughs) 50 years like you know being very genuine and saying like there are a lot of people who deserve this award and he's right but also like he obviously deserves that (laughs) so we're all just like it's that sort of um i don't know we're we're all just i think that's part of what makes somebody really good at music is just constantly trying to get better at it it's it's not like then for me there's definitely also been this sort of attempt to shift towards like having some level of confidence as well of being like okay Mm. i am actually pretty good at what i do like i (laughs) it's there is definitely a point where it shifts into i can't be like self-deprecating all the time or whatever like i know that i'm good at the mandolin but i'm also always trying to get better and i have better and worse days and stuff And
0: i think that's a very it's a very human thing to forget to look back and we just look at where we've still got to go and how long it's going to take us to get there. And we forget to look back at how far we've come because it's just like, it's human nature. I think particularly with musicians, it's, you know, it's, it's can be our undoing sometimes, but it's, it's really natural to do it. There's nothing worse than somebody who is great, but knows they are and has no (laughs) doubts doubts about it whatsoever (laughs) because it probably means they've stopped learning stuff.
1: Yeah. And I've been doing this for a long time. And so I, I've started to actually notice like I didn't notice it before when it was happening but now I've noticed like there are songs or recordings that I listen to where I'm like I could never play that there's no way I'll ever be good enough to like play that and I would listen to when I was younger and I listen to now and I think that but there are ones that I listen to now and realize like oh I could play that like you know it it would be possible for me to learn that like whereas it wasn't even conceivable for me to be able to play that at a certain point in time. So that's been a benchmark for me is like looking at things that I, um, (laughs) that I had wanted to learn. Um, and, and now have the, now I can.
0: Yeah. 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 That's great. Um, we're sort of getting towards wrapping things up time. Um, what what have you got coming up that, that you want to share with us? We've talked a bit about the tune books and we've talked about um, kind of duet work, but um, I know you've got a new album coming out any day now. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, and that's another, it's very much a snapshot thing of, it's a solo tenor banjo record, which um, I think is very funny to have made, <laughs> but it's, I've always loved the banjo more than the mandolin probably. Like I, I just, I really like the banjo, but I'm too lazy to actually learn how to play the banjo for real. (laughs) So I really like playing the tenor banjo because it's tuned the same as a mandolin. And somebody uh, sent me one towards the beginning of the lockdown. And so I was just sort of playing it all year. And I had, like, worked up some arrangements and stuff for it. And I just sort of realized, like, oh, I could just record these. This would be nice. Like, I like how these sound. And it's sort of a nice little snapshot of, like, what I was doing and it's all solo so it's also very much like my experience of just playing these tunes alone in my apartment yeah um, for a bunch of months and so it's it's fun it's definitely something like <laughs> like I don't know what bin you would put it in genre wise like it's not really you know it's a tenor it's a solo tenor banjo album it's not a bluegrass record but I'm playing the instrument, like a bluegrass mandolin player would play tenor banjo, um, and it's but it's just pretty. It's just stuff I like. It's just yeah music that I'm into.
0: So when when you get the physical copies pressed, you'll kind of obviously write on the side "file under solo tenor banjo brackets played like a mandolin player would play it." And yeah, that's the section it goes in.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> Great. So when when's that
1: due out? When can we hear that? Uh, Friday, October fifteenth. So. Um, that's this week. That's this week. Yeah. So that's like my main thing right now. I'm I'm doing some shows with um, Alyssa in our duet, and I I think some of them are going to be live streamed at the end of the month. I'm not positive oh, cool. about that, but we're always doing stuff and making videos and stuff, so it's fun to follow along with. And um, yeah, I don't know. I'm going into the winter. I'm excited to start working on some new ideas and stuff for next year you know I'm playing a bunch with Missy Rains next year we're coming cool. over to Europe supposedly so assuming that'd that works cool. out
0: that'd be cool great um and kind of one last question just because I've I've read so much of the, the stuff you've written about kind of researching tunes and authenticity and history and just being fascinated by what bluegrass is and where it comes from and what it means are there, is there a book or two books that you would recommend people to go out and buy if they want to dig into this stuff further? Is there, is there a great read out there that you'd recommend to us?
1: Well, it's a good question. Um, and it's actually something I've thought about a lot recently. I just did this panel about the future of bluegrass scholarship and like academia. And one of the things we talked about is um, having things to recommend to people. Because there's lots of great books. I have a lot of books here on my shelf. Um, But I don't always recommend all of them because a lot of them need context. I mean, the classic is just Neil Rosenberg's Bluegrass. Yeah, sure. But, you know, it's a long book that you learn a lot about the history, but it it won't necessarily... It's not super relevant. I am (laughs) in a loose plug theoretically working on some like sort of updated sort of more accessible history things that will be available at some point. Um, Cool. (laughs) Let me, wait, let me look at my shelf and see if I can see one, if there's one I'm forgetting. Well, the bluegrass reader is fun. It's a collection of essays um, compiled by um, Thomas Goldsmith, which um, I think that's maybe a little bit more fun and i maybe i would recommend actually toy heart which is um a podcast that yeah yeah that tom power uh, did the interviews for for Blue, the bluegrass situation tom's a really great interviewer and a secret bluegrass fanatic and so his interviews are really great and he covers a lot of a lot of ground in the um first season this is the second season i haven't listened to but um it's it's really cool i so i'd recommend that probably
0: yeah great i'll stick a link to that in the show notes then brilliant um i can't thank you enough for doing this it's been really enjoyable chatting to you about this and um i've I've learned a lot and i imagine that everybody who's going to listen to this will feel the same so thank you so much for coming on the show
1: oh well likewise i had a really great time talking
0: So there we have it. Uh, great interview, I'm sure you will agree, I really enjoyed doing that one um, I will pop links in the show notes to all the bits and pieces we chatted about, so you can go off and find those interviews and the book and the podcast and yeah, and all that and do go and listen to Tristan's new tenor banjo album as well as all the other bits and pieces, I particularly love the latest Scroggins and Rose release, go and check that out, there's some great tracks on there, um, yeah and i will be back as always with more tunes next week um, and another food for thought episode on fridays but in the meantime have a great time and happy picking bluegrass jam along is proud to be sponsored by collings guitars and mandolins making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s visit collingsguitars.com and find out why